Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from CODA about how local public transportation is dealing with the ongoing pandemic and changes in policy it's making. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including coronavirus vaccine incentives and mandates and businesses navigating the situation. She also has a segment about an organization working to empower more women to run for public office and an update on the Dr. Richard Strauss cases at Ohio State University. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology about cancer research. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Jeff Pullen. He's the Public and Media Relations Manager for the Central Ohio Transit Authority, or as we all know it, CODA. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, just in a nutshell, what's going on with CODA these days in terms of, uh, you know, like with the pandemic and, and the volume of travelers and that kind of thing? Well, we um, are seeing our numbers uh, slowly increasing month by month. Um, we ha- we are doing about uh, 25 to 30,000 passenger trips a day on weekdays. Uh, that's about half of what we did uh, before the pandemic. We were doing about 60,000 during the weekdays, but it is significantly larger than what we saw about a year and a half ago. Um, we are seeing more people coming to work at their physical location. We know that there are a lot of people who are doing hybrid, uh, like I am in some ways, um, but we are hoping that you know, as a community, we can get these COVID rates to go back down again and see that growth continue in 2022. Isn't it amazing, you know, when we think of the journey that all of us have taken on this, for you to say that your ridership is about half what it was at the start of the pandemic and that that's actually good news, that it shows you what's happened. Well, if you remember, and you and I talked about this last year, I mean, we had, as a part of... um the stay-at-home orders, for the very first time, public transportation, not only here, but across the state and across the country, were actively telling people to stay at home and stay off of transit vehicles. It wasn't because transit vehicles were unsafe. As a matter of fact, we've learned that um, a lot of the cleaning protocols and the air quality on our transit vehicles um, are actually very good. It's just that we were telling people that they needed to stay at home for the betterment of the pandemic. So um, when you tell people for months and months to stay at home, now it's, you know, trying to encourage them to come back. And that takes a little bit of time. Has there been any study? Because I'm sure every metropolitan area in the country is going through this and concerned about it and planning for it. Will it return to the levels that it was before at some point? Our ridership? I mean, we know that it's going to be a slow process. We know that it's going to be a gradual process. And that, and we know that uh, it will take a lot of messaging to the community. Some of it is just, you know, the fact that workplaces have changed. Um, Going to a hybrid model, that is happening in a lot of places. A lot of uh, larger businesses are telling their folks to either continue working from home or to uh, work at home only a few days a week and uh, come into the office a few days a week. So we know that it's going to take time for those trends to change. Um, but we do see that gradual growth, and we're encouraged by that. Talking with Jeff Pullen from CODA. Now, you've uh, made some major announcements here just in the last couple of days. Yeah, we have a really great uh, board of trustees that are that are really forward-thinking. 
recently, uh, this past Wednesday, just approved a new fare policy for um, customers. And basically, this corrects the digital inequity in transit prices um, and creates a simpler system for our customers to use. Um, in the past, people who pay by the trip, that means when they get on the bus, they put $2 into the fare box. If they're doing that two or three times a day, they're paying two, four, six dollars a day. They're they're most likely paying more than somebody who can pay for a monthly pass up front, which is sixty two dollars. Um, if you're paying, you know, two or three trips a day every day for thirty days, you're sometimes paying um, twice as much as somebody who is paying a monthly pass. So we have um, created a, a new system and a new policy that will uh, allow for fare capping. Uh, that means that once we implement this new system later this fall, which will be a digital payment system, and we can talk about that in a few minutes, um, once you enroll in that system, you will pay no more than $4.50 a day, which means once you get on the bus three times, basically it'll charge you $2 on the first trip, $2 on the second trip, 50 cents on the third trip, and if you go anywhere else that day, it's no additional charge. So $4.50 a day, you will be capped, and then at, it'll cap you at $62 during the calendar month, meaning if you hit $62 on, on November 15th, the rest of the month, you're not charged. So it really helps people who can, pay, who can only pay as they go get the same rate as people who can, uh, who can afford to purchase a uh, pass, uh, monthly pass up front. And it also, there's a lot of other things that the new fare policy allows for. For instance, we're eliminating that uh, 70 cent, 75 cent uh, upcharge for express lines. So all of our transit lines are $2 now. We've not raised fares in more than 10 years, and we're really proud of that. Mm. So it still remains at $2. And if you use, uh, if you get on our bus and you pay $2, um, it, that $2 fee for fare will be good for two hours. So when we implement this new fare payment system, if you get on the bus and you pay $2, you will be able to travel anywhere on any line for two hours uh, with that fare. So it's just created a lot of ways to make it simple, simpler for our customers and more equitable for our customers. Capping the fares per month like that, it's just outstanding because, as you mentioned, you know, for somebody to fork over 62 bucks at one time for a monthly pass, uh, that's just simply out of the question for a lot of people. Yeah, when you think about it, and, and, this, and this happens um, in, tran- in transit agencies all across the country, and that's why more of them are moving to this way of thinking because those who uh, can afford it the least are paying the most. Right. When you're paying as you go, you are paying more than those who can can purchase a monthly pass up front, and that's just not fair. And we have to get our system to um, make that more equitable for those customers. Some of those folks might even uh, who do buy one might be going to a payday lender to be able to do it, and then if they miss a payment there, then they're they're stuck in that big rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean it is a um, you know it. it it, it disproportionately affects uh, people, um, and what we can do is create a system, and that 
and that's where our next step in this process goes, is create a, is a fair payment uh, system where everybody can enroll and everyone can take advantage of the same rate. So later this fall, we will create a digital payment system uh, and we'll launch that uh, to our customers. And, and there'll be some education involved, so maybe I'll come back and we'll talk about that then. But um, it will be, uh, you will either use a app on your phone or a smart card and you will be able to load uh, cash onto that app or smart card and you'll be able to tap that app or the uh, card on the validator on the bus and basically it will keep track of how much you're spending and when you hit $4.50 in a day, you're, you're done paying for that day and you can go anywhere else for, for no additional charge. And when you get to $62 within that calendar month, the rest of the month, uh, you're not being charged. And that way, people can pay as they go. They can load uh, cash onto the, the smart card or the app just like they would have loaded cash into the fare box, but they're still getting those rates that anybody who purchases a monthly pass or a day pass would have gotten. That's great. And again, for some folks uh, who will be transitioning to this, that is going to require a pretty uh, substantial education program, I would think. It will. And for, you know, if you are a person who has a bank account or a credit card, you'll be able to enroll that day and just start loading cash on. Um, And that will be easy for those folks. There are some people who are unbanked, meaning that they don't have a bank account um, that they can connect their app or smart card to. And we have a solution for that. We are creating a network of nearly 400 retail locations across uh, Central Ohio. Many of those folks who are unbanked are already using that to pay utility bills or um, other types of payments. Think about going to a Dollar General or a Walgreens or a Speedway, and people use that to make payments. They'll be able to take their card or their app in there, load money onto that cash or load cash onto uh, that system, and be able to use it from there. Um, it, it, and they'll be able to use it instantaneously. It is an added step, but it's an added step that's going to save some of our unbanked customers hundreds of dollars a year, quite frankly. And if they're using this system every day, if they're using public transportation every day, these are dollars that they can be saving and using for other things. And so it, it, it might be an added step, but it's going to be so important in the long run for our customers who really need uh, to be paying less for transit. Talking with Jeff Pullen, he's the Public and Media Relations Manager for CODA, the Central Ohio Transit Authority. You mentioned all the changes made through the Board of Trustees, and one of them also involved kids as well. Yeah, so um, we have simplified the way that uh, children are charged fare on our vehicles as well. So first of all, parents used to be restricted to only having three children on the bus with them, like three children per one adult. We know that some families just don't, you know, just can't fit in with that range. They might have four kids. And so we've eliminated that restriction. And we've also um, eliminated height specifications for children. In the past, you a child that was 48 inches or under could ride at no charge. Well, that's a little difficult to, one, 
and, and, and to expect operators to know the height of children. Uh, it also makes the boarding process a little lengthier, and we need to get people on board faster. So with the, the latest fair policy approval by the board, uh, children under five years uh, will be able to ride at no charge, and children uh, ages five to 12 will board for $1. So it just really simplifies that, that makes mom and dad not have to get out the, the tape measure uh, to get their kids on, and also doesn't make it a situation where the boarding process is lengthy. And Jeff, before the pandemic hit, I know we were seeing some different looking buses out there and uh, changes in the program. What's going on with that? Well, we are constantly working to make our uh, system cleaner and greener. And for the past uh, 10 years, I would say, we have been uh, working to reduce the number of uh, diesel uh, vehicles uh, and convert to what we call compressed natural gas, which burns cleaner, it's more cost effective, and uh, it, it, we can run our vehicles longer on them as well. So compressed natural gas um, is what we're, we're, we're switching our vehicles over to. Uh, we are about 70, 72% of the way in transferring our fleet from diesel to um, compressed natural gas. And by 2025, we will be completely diesel-free in our community. We are also launching uh, later this month our first electric vehicles uh, in our fleet. And it'll be at first, it'll be two. Uh, we have we received them earlier this summer. We have been testing them with um, OSU and uh, TRC uh, Transportation Research uh, Center out. Um, in Union County, and we have uh, learned a lot about how long our uh, we can run our vehicles on one charge, our, our electric vehicles on one charge, and uh, we'll be putting those first two into service uh, later this month, and then our board just approved another eight electric vehicles that will arrive in 2022. So it's really exciting because our goal, as I said earlier, is to be diesel-free by 2025. But by 2050, our goal is to uh, be zero emission. And that is going to be uh, a big process, but it's something really exciting because public transportation uh, can often contribute to greenhouse gases. And while uh, you know this region, with more people coming into our community, uh, transportation um, greenhouse gas emissions have increased by 40%. That's all the cars on the road, including trucks and buses and all that stuff. But CODA has been really proud over the past 10 years to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 10%. So it's, we're moving in the right direction, and electric vehicles uh, its just another big step. It's outstanding. And what about general services like the, the C-Bus circulator that runs from German Village up to the short north? Is that operating right now? Um, it is not. Um, we're examining, we're constantly examining uh, those kinds of service, like a circulator service. We also are examining when is the right time to bring back um, Air, Con- Air Connect, which took us from the airport to downtown. Um, as you might know, uh, and a lot of people know, we're facing the same workforce challenges that a lot of um, industries are facing right now, and public transportation is no different. So uh, there's a high demand for CDL, 
workers, people who have a CDL, and uh, operators are high in demand. And we are working on building up that workforce. Um, and in the meantime, we have to focus on the service that we have. Then we have to build up the service that we have because we still don't have later night service. Our service ends around 11, and we would like to get it to 12 or 1 a.m. So we have to work on building up our workforce. Then we have to work on building up our system. And then we can look at things like circulators and, and, and those enhanced services that we have. So it, it's going to take some time, I'll be honest with you. It's going to take um, a while because emerging from this pandemic, is just as challenging as getting through it. And so, you know, hopefully we'll be able to take a look at those other services in the near future. It is so amazing because, you know, when the pandemic hit, all the odd things that were happening, like toilet paper shortages and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you can that was easy to see coming. But I don't think anybody guessed that once restaurants reopened and public transportation started back up, that there would be a worker shortage. Just amazing how it's all playing out. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people think that everybody is staying home, but I think for the most part, you know, there's just a, you know, this is a great, if you're, if you're looking for a job, this is a great time because there's a lot of openings and there's a lot of different opportunities and it's very competitive. Um, Coda is very proud of the fact that among our peer agencies, we're in the top 5% for pay and uh, benefits, meaning that in our agencies of our size, um, we're paying, you know, we're paying better and we're providing benefits better than 95% of our peers. But at the same time, there is just so much opportunity out there that um, it is hard to fight natural attrition. People are retiring, people are can find jobs in other places. It's a higher, higher than normal attrition. And also, it takes a long time to, to hire, like recruit, hire, and train an operator. You think about it, like the hiring process is three or four weeks, and then the training process is up to 12 weeks. So you're looking at a, you know, a, anywhere from a 12 to 16-month process to train operators, and you want them to be trained well, so you can't really skimp on that. Right. So it's going to take, you know, it took us a year dealing with it, this um, pandemic to a point where we were able to, you know, start building up service and operating again. It's going to take a while to get uh, every industry back to where it was. If uh, somebody is interested in being a driver, Jeff, and they don't have a commercial driver's license, can they still come to COTA and kind of be, uh, you know, guided through all the steps that are necessary and then the training and all that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we are all, we are always taking applications. We do have um, a great pool of uh, potential applicants, um, and we always are looking for more. So go to our website, and you can find out how to um, to apply. Coda.com. But we do provide on-site training that also includes getting your CDL license. So all of that happens at Coda. You don't have to go somewhere else to get that type of training. So not only do you learn how to be a good ambassador to our community as an operator, but also you learn all the skills of driving the bus and getting licenses and everything. It must be a really interesting job because, you know, I, I know people, too, who have been school bus drivers in their life, which just to me, I guess for the way I'm wired, 
just seems like it would be an over-the-top stressful job to me. And yet, you know, they just very calmly say, yeah, um, I got to start my route in a couple hours, you know, in the middle of the afternoon and off they go. And it, it's just their routine. Yeah, I mean, many of our operators, um, you know, they as, as you continue through the ranks at, at CODA, you're able to pick your shift eventually. Uh, the first couple of years, you're at, you know, you're the bottom of seniority and you don't get the best shifts. But if you can work through that, you're able to pick your shifts for the most part. Uh, many of our operators do that. But, you know, one of the things that I love about Coda and Central Ohio is that when you are on the bus and you, you know, you, you listen to people getting on and off the bus, they always say thank you to the operators as they get off the bus. I didn't, I was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago and I didn't hear that. And I, said it out loud and I realized I was the only person on the bus saying thank you as I got off the bus because I'm just you know it's a habit of mine there is a lot of respect for our operators and and quite frankly you know with the pandemic having people very tense and and people deciding whether they want to wear masks or not wear masks Toto requires masks uh, on all of our vehicles and that is because uh, we're under federal guidelines to all public transportation, including trains, planes, buses, ride share services. We are required to have our customers and our employees wear masks until at least January 18th of 2022. That's how far the order has been extended. So it's not our rule, but we have to enforce it. And for some people, they get very frustrated and they get very frustrated at our operators. And that's just not fair. So. You know, I use this as a moment to, you know, you know, ask our um, customers who who are frustrated by that. We understand the frustration, but don't take it out on our operators. They're just doing the best job that they can, and they never thought they were going to be mask enforcers, but they have to right now. So we all just wear our masks and we get on and off the bus and thank our operators because they're doing a really good job under really tense times. Talking with Jeff Pullen, he's the Public and Media Relations Manager for CODA. Anything else you'd like to add, Jeff? No, I just thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. And, and I'd love to come back at some point and talk about our new fare uh, payment system in the next uh, month or so. Absolutely. And, uh, again, the website where folks can find out all the info? CODA.com. And uh, there's just a lot of information out there, and we keep it updated uh, around the clock. Great. Thanks, Jeff, for your time. Sure appreciate it. Thank you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. At the beginning of this segment, Tracy talks about the state's Vax to College program. Since this recording, that program has been doubled to include kids ages 5 through 11 once vaccines have been approved for that age group, doubling the program to $2 million. The state of Ohio is not requiring people to be vaccinated. But the state will give you some incentives to get the COVID-19 vaccine, how the new Vax to School program works. Ohio lawmakers are pushing to make it illegal for the state to issue any type of mask, 
vaccine or testing mandates. We'll break down House Bill 425 and a legal challenge to the new Ohio legislative maps. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Governor Mike DeWine is hoping more incentives will boost COVID-19 vaccination numbers in our state, specifically for young people. Vax to School is a new program that will be open to all Ohioans ages 12 to 25. Those who qualify must have received at least one dose of the vaccine, which makes them eligible for one of five $100,000 scholarships that can be for any college or university or for career, technical or job training education. There will also be the chance to win one of 50 scholarships valued at $10,000 apiece. Do the math, that's $1 million coming out of the COVID relief fund. The governor on the heels of the Vaximillion lottery says he hopes this will help boost the number of young people who are vaccinated. You know, people's minds are changing. Now, look, some of it is because they may know a friend who died. They may know someone who got really deathly sick from COVID. They may, it may be any number of things. So we'll never know exactly uh, what pushes people over the line to get vaccinated. It is a, ultimately, it's their decision. The governor says that since August, there have been more than 42,000 confirmed cases among children ages 5 to 17. Now, when it comes to fighting COVID-19 health mandates, conservative Ohio lawmakers are taking their efforts a step further. A new proposed law would prohibit mask vaccine and testing mandates pretty much everywhere except hospitals or healthcare facilities. Although it was just introduced, 10TV's Lindsay Mills reports on the details of a bill and what our legal experts have to say. This is House Bill 425. It's the latest COVID-related proposal to be introduced to Ohio's General Assembly. It would affect all different types of businesses, public and private schools, and any type of state agency. It would block things like testing, vaccine requirements, not just for COVID-19, and mask mandates. Taking aim directly at measures intended to prevent the spread of of COVID-19. Micah Berman is an associate professor for public health law at OSU. So unlike some other bills, this applies uh, very broadly to essentially any any employer, uh, either public or private. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden announced federal vaccine and testing requirements for employers with more than 100 workers. If HB 425 were to become law and the federal rule stands to require vaccines or weekly tests in businesses of a certain size, which law do we follow? For that, Peter Shane, a law professor also from OSU. So the basic story is this. Federal law under the Constitution takes precedence over state law. Even though it's very early in the process, some fear this will tie even more hands from making decisions, as we have seen with SB 22, which now allows the General Assembly to rescind any health mandate by Ohio's executive branch. You know, the, the way that it's written um, to you know essentially imply that the COVID vaccines are um, you know, not, not fully vetted or that there's some technology in them that we need to be worried about. I, I think that's just really feeding into um, dangerous conspiracy theories about these vaccines. And I, I think it's disappointing to see that coming out of the, the General Assembly. Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. We reached out to both sponsors of this bill, and we will certainly let you know if they get back to us for comment. Now, the Biden administration's vaccine mandate is for companies, again, with more than 100 employees. But what about companies that have fewer workers? 
10 TV's Clay Gordon talked with one local business owner who's now requiring staff to get vaccinated. Wolf's Ridge Brewery in Columbus celebrates eight years in operation this weekend. Well, for the last two years during the pandemic. It feels like those have been eight uh, in and of themselves. So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been tough. Tough on his employees. All the ups and downs that we've dealt with, the uncertainty about not only health, but, you know, uh, employment, things like that. It's been a, a constant stress uh, for, for them and us. Less than 5% of his 72-person staff is not vaccinated. Souter says it's been one week since they implemented a vaccine mandate for employees. You know, sub 5% has a disproportionately large impact on the rest of the, the employees and the business overall. So, you know, when we took a step back and looked at it, we, we said this, this has to happen. So where do other businesses and industries fall in this debate? Well, we talked to the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, and they say right now it varies. It's a mixed bag, and there's a lot of confusion. Confusion over which rules to follow. The upcoming Biden administration's vaccine mandates for companies with 100 or more employees or a bill circulating in the Ohio House limiting employers' rights with vaccination rules. And also, the legislature hasn't passed any bill yet. So all we can say right now is conduct business as usual. You can, re you can require your employees to be vaccinated if you want to. That's the current state of the law. You don't have to. Souter's decision was hard to make. It could mean he will lose some employees. If we do lose those people, that's okay for the benefit of our business at the end of the day. And you know, uh, hopefully that doesn't happen and it doesn't look like it will. And certainly there are a lot of employers who say, I would never require my employees to be vaccinated. That's their choice to make. Uh, but there are also a lot of employers who, whether or not they would like to potentially require a vaccine, recognize that they're already struggling to fill uh, jobs. They already have workforce shortages. In Columbus, Clay Gordon, 10 TV News. Two of Ohio's congressional reps tested positive for COVID-19. Democrat Tim Ryan tweeted saying he had mild symptoms, that he is vaccinated. Congressman Ryan got a lot of questions about his experience, so he held a news conference to talk about it. You know, last week I wasn't feeling uh, well, wasn't exactly sure, you know, out and about on the campaign trail and uh, thought I had some maybe some allergies and took uh, on three different occasions, got three negative uh, tests, two of them the rapids. One was the uh, 48 hour more comprehensive um, and continued to, you know, to not feel uh, well. And then uh, on Sunday, I lost my taste and knew that that was, uh, you know, not uh, anything normal. So I went for another test on Monday and that's when I've got the uh, got the report that uh, I was testing positive. Meantime, Republican Congressman Bob Latta also tested positive after being around someone who tested positive. Latta says he is fully vaccinated and experiencing no symptoms. Unresponsive and not prepared. Those are findings from a state audit on the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. They underscore what 10 investigates first revealed and reported in May. We first told you that audit was underway earlier this summer in response to the number of issues the public reported with Ohio's unemployment system. State Auditor Keith Faber says the pandemic exposed cracks in that system that have been in place for decades. Those include being underfunded and under-equipped to handle the amount of claims processed during the pandemic. The 138-page audit offers recommendations for ODJFS to study further. The director says in response that the office has already started to make changes to shore up the process for customers and to have a plan moving forward. The director says a big piece of this is updating technology, and that is also underway. The pool of candidates hoping to represent Ohio in the U.S. Senate is growing. 
up next, I talked one-on-one -on -one with the newest person to throw his hat into the ring. Meantime, another representative seat will be up for grabs. Hear why Anthony Gonzalez is getting out of the game of politics. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and and thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan has entered the U.S. Senate race, crowding the field of Republicans hoping to fill Senator Rob Portman's seat next year. Dolan updated his Twitter bio, also wrote an op-ed saying he wants to share his conservative principles. I talked with him this week about what made him decide to run and what he wants to do if he's elected. I've been in public service and private service, so commitment to making Ohio a stronger place has been in my blood. And as I traveled the state during my Ohio Matters tour, it became very clear to me that Ohioans want this race to be about them. They want to know that someone's going to go to Washington and fight for their jobs, fight to make them secure, fight to make Ohio uh, an attractive place for outsiders to invest and innovators to, to come. Also vying for that GOP nomination, former Ohio Treasurer ja Josh Mandel, author and venture capitalist J.D. Vance, former state GOP chair Jane Timken, car dealer Bernie Moreno, and investment banker Mike Gibbons. U.S. Rep. Tim Ryan and attorney Morgan Harper are running on the Democratic side of that race. So we'll be watching that one. Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez is opening up about his decision not to seek re-election. He made the announcement on Twitter. You might remember he was elected back in 2018 to the 16th Congressional District. The former Ohio State Buckeye says he just couldn't keep working with the way politics is running right now, especially within his own party. He is one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump. We talked with him about why he made the decision and what he wants to finish before he leaves. It is very bittersweet to, to not run for re-election. But the truth is, when we think about what kind of life we want for our two kids, uh, for our marriage, what kind of dad do I want to be, what kind of husband do I want to be, and, and how that looks for us, um, that the honest truth is, you know, we have to do this. Uh, it's it's the right thing for us. Um, it's sad to, to, to go, certainly, but... But ultimately, um, you know, if, if I'm not willing to put my family first, then, then what good am I? I'll tell you, our focus as an office has always been to put our constituents first uh, and to serve our veterans. Our veterans have been willing to, or in some instances, paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, for our country. And, and so we believe we have an obligation to serve them. Uh, and so we're, we're working on some veteran homelessness and, and mental health uh, initiatives right now. And I hope to finish those off before we we exit, but um, if we aren't able to get those done, you know, by next year, then then hopefully whoever takes a seat will pick them up, uh, because there's universal agreement across the 16th district uh, that we have to do right by our veterans. Uh, additionally, we've been working on some good workforce training pieces of legislation uh, with Senator Portman for for quite a while. Um, hope to get those done as well. But but again, you you, know, you can't always control everything in Congress. 
Women candidates in the state of Ohio are working to show they are doing more than playing politics and turning to the Matriots and its new CEO for help. Emily Quickshriver is the full-time chief executive officer of the nonpartisan organization, which is endorsing candidates in every kind of non-judicial race this fall, from school boards to village councils to township trustees and state senate seats. Quickshriver told me women should have a much more visible role in leading this state. The last study that we did had about 26.5% of the elected seats in our state held by women. Um, Our population, as we know now, is about 51% uh, women within the state. So our our government is not reflecting the, the population. And we've known that for a very long time, right, that, that a representative government should reflect the populations that put it there, um, and that we should also have the opportunity to have different viewpoints so that we can come at these really challenging problems like redistricting, like um, like the business of politics that we've talked about, so that we can come at it from different angles, but converse about it and come out with a better outcome. Getting elected is not enough, and that's what we're learning about our elected officials, right? They need to be able to have confidence back in their district. They need to have um, the availability of funds in their um, in their campaigns and in their committees to be able to negotiate uh, downtown. And so one of the things that, that the Matriots will be thinking about is how do we help empower our candidates, not just get them over the finish line for um, to become an elected official, but then to really have the confidence and, and the moxie to be able to um, to negotiate down um, downtown. And I think that is an incredibly um, beneficial thing that the Matriots is poised to do, um, and really uniquely so for women in the state. When you say negotiate downtown, make it plain, what do you mean? I mean, be in the room where it happens in the crafting of legislation and to be able to say, you know what, this is what my constituents want and you all should follow, follow my lead instead of having to, um, having to be kind of on the back foot in the negotiations. When we think about the pandemic and women trying to be in the room where it's happening, where they're talking about uh, vaccinations and what's going to be uh, on the next list of vaccines, specifically the COVID-19 vaccine and being able to weigh in on those conversations when you have women who have medical background, but you're in the room with people who perhaps do not. And, you know, they're outnumbered. Well, and similarly, we know that women are the number one primary caregivers in the state. We know that they're the number one consumers in the state. And so there should be women in the room talking about, if we're talking about a vaccination, we're also talking about our children. We're talking about child care providers. We're talking about pediatricians and pediatricians offices. Those kinds of things, women as the primary caregivers um, in our state should be represented and their voice should be heard in the in the negotiations and in the drafting of policies that are going to affect the people we care for. Matriot's endorsements, according to their website, go to Ohio women running for political office, regardless of political affiliation. Candidates must support legislation and public policy promoting an economy in which women can prosper, communities are safe and healthy, sustainable opportunities for women are available, and human, civil, and reproductive rights will be safeguarded. You can learn more about Matriot's at 10TV.com. I have a link for you 
to their website at ours. You know it, 10TV.com. All right, the fight over Ohio's redistricting map is going to the state Supreme Court. The League of Women Voters of Ohio filed an appeal. The Ohio Redistricting Commission passed the four-year maps. The suit calls the map extreme partisan gerrymandering. Governor Mike DeWine's spokesperson didn't want to comment on the lawsuit. Some state lawmakers are taking aim at the district lines as well. State Rep. Paula Hicks Hudson of Toledo is calling for hearings on House Bill 313. The legislation has been untouched in committee since May. Hicks Hudson says the bill would strengthen transparency requirements in the redistricting process. The former Toledo mayor also says it would help Ohio fulfill its duties under reforms voters passed in 2015 and 2018. It's made a kind of a rush, mishmash of a, of a process for citizens, which was not what the uh, citizens wanted in 2015 or 2018 when they passed, you know, and asked for the constitutional amendments to do redistricting in an open and fair uh, way. We will have maps, but will those be the maps that the citizens wanted? And I, and I hazard to think that they won't be because it's such a rush job and it didn't have to be. What's happened is that instead of you electing your, your representative, your representative is picking the voter. And that's not the way democracy is supposed to work. You know, if, if I don't think that I have to be responsive to, my, to the phone calls of the people who put me here in the seat, then, you know, I can do whatever I want to. And I think the bigger problem is that we are losing sight of what we should be doing in Ohio to make Ohio a better place for people to live, grow, and to raise their families. Some Republicans, like Senate President Matt Huffman, have argued the maps are constitutional and that they took into account Democrats' wishes. There's anger and frustration after a federal court ruling on lawsuits connected to the now-deceased Dr. Richard Strauss. Governor Mike DeWine weighs in on the judge's comments about the statute of limitations. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. A federal judge dismissed some of the biggest unsettled lawsuits in connection to now-deceased OSU team Dr. Richard Strauss. The case is centered around Ohio State's failure to stop decades-old sexual abuse by Strauss. The judge said Strauss's crimes fell beyond the statute of limitations, which is two years for a civil case. Here's what Governor Mike DeWine had to say about that. My basic instinct, uh, quite candidly, um, is if, if there is a case to be made uh, that this is such a heinous crime, the victims are so impacted, uh, my belief is there should be no statute of limitations. One of the victims of Dr. Richard Strauss's abuse case is talking about that judge's decision. Michael Schick said he was fondled by Strauss during physicals while he was on the OSU wrestling team in 1988. U.S. District Judge Michael H. Watson said the case couldn't go forward because Strauss's crimes were beyond the statute of limitations, which is two years for a civil case. I'm overwhelmingly full of anger right now. Uh, to be honest, I'm angry at the judge. I'm angry at Ohio State. I'm angry at my coaches. Ohio State previously reached a $47 million settlement with 185 survivors. This recent case 
involved plaintiffs who did not accept the settlement, claiming they were owed more than what the university was offering. Strauss died in 2005. The Ohio Supreme Court is weighing in on whether a child can be charged in adult court with crimes the state didn't prove in juvenile court. The court heard oral arguments from both prosecutors and a defense attorney representing a 19-year-old who was convicted for a string of violent crimes. Ohio's attorney general says how the court decides this case could have a larger impact on how crimes involving juveniles are handled. Here's chief investigative reporter Bennett Haverly. A case must mean the set of charges that are eligible for transfer. I think adopting the government's view that case uh, is defined by a set of facts. At the center of this case before the Ohio Supreme Court is a fight over how cases can or cannot be moved from juvenile to adult court. If you believe the prosecutors and the Ohio Attorney General's office... Case means, at the very least, all the charges pending against the defendant. These charges are still pending, and so they're bound over with the rest of the case. But defense attorney Timothy Hackett is arguing a different interpretation of state law. He claims the rights of his client, Eddie Burns, were violated when prosecutors unfairly sent over unproven charges in juvenile court to adult court. Burns is currently serving a 27-year prison sentence after being convicted of several felonies, including aggravated robbery and attempted murder. Mr. Burns, you beat me so bad that the braces I have to wear on my left leg, you stomped me so hard the brace broke half in two. Della Watts was one of Burns' victims. During his sentencing hearing in 2019, she spoke about her husband, 81-year-old Willie Watts, who never recovered from the beating he suffered. And you knew he could not fight you back. You stumped him in his head, face, with your heavy boots. Willie died weeks later, but a medical examiner was unable to determine if a previous health issue or the assault from Burns contributed to his death. Burns was also accused of robbing a Cleveland TV news crew. Among the victims, now current 10 TV reporter Lacey Crisp. During his sentencing hearing, Burns said this. I would like to apologize to all my victims and share my time But his attorney is now arguing that facing 56 charges and the potential of decades in prison, Burns felt compelled to accept the plea deal. His attorney argued to the court that prosecutors violated Eddie's statutory and constitutional rights when it criminally indicted him on counts that were never transferred to adult court. This is uh, uh, a defense lawyer doing what lawyers do. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost said if the Ohio Supreme Court were to rule in Burns' favor, it could have rippling effects on other juvenile cases. He'd like to see the state's high court stand with the state. The in- intention of the law passed by the General Assembly here is very clear. Uh, it-, it says that the upon a bind over, uh, the case is supposed to go, not pieces of the case, uh, to adult court. The Chief Justice said she would take these arguments under consideration. She did not give a timeline on when a decision might be reached. It could be as much as six months. Reporting outside the Ohio Supreme Court, Bennett Haberly. 10 TV News. And we thank you all for being here with us today. We'll see you back here next Sunday morning. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. There are no words to describe it. The isolation. The boredom. 
the loneliness. If you're wondering where your teenage son or daughter's spirit went, you're hardly alone. The past year has been devastating, especially for them. But here's the good news. They might just find it again, playing high school sports. Workouts that stimulate, teammates and coaches that care, the sense of belonging so many of us have been missing lately. That's what school sports are all about. The sense of achievement is real, and the camaraderie is hard to beat. Coping with uncertainty is difficult, but school sports can help the teenagers in your family start feeling like themselves again. Encourage them to give it a try. High school sports, it's so much more than a game. This message presented by the Ohio High School Athletic Association and the Ohio Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Lori Pierce. She's the president of... ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. She's also a radiation oncologist. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you this morning? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Talking about uh, developments in cancer research and treatment. That's correct. Uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology is, we're a global society where we have more than 45,000 professionals as members and and these professionals are over 150 countries, um, and we focus on evidence-based information for all types of cancer and treatment for, um, to care for people with cancer. We have information from over 5,000 abstracts that we presented on the latest uh, breakthrough in cancer treatment. Now, I have to ask you, because it's, uh, I guess, kind of an obvious question, uh, with much of the world being sort of locked down over the last year, has that harmed cancer research? Um, that's a great question. Certainly when the pandemic first hit, um, there were many aspects of our treatment and our research that had to shut down, but then we we were able to re-engage, certainly on the treatment side, earlier than we were on the research side. Um, but with faith practices, we were able to reinstate many of our research efforts. We did lose some time um, on some of the the positive momentum, but we are back and, and moving forward, and uh, we continue to uh, seek more and more funding, federal funding, to support our research efforts so that we kind of get beyond that bump and we come back even stronger than what we were before the pandemic. Cancer, uh, from what I understand, has in some ways sort of connections to viruses. Is this work, this research on the coronavirus, could it at all be helpful in any way down the road on cancer research? 
will be. Certainly some of the techniques that were used in developing the vaccines are techniques that we use in terms of research with cancer. And, and I think, um, as with most types of, of research, they're, they're connected. Um, you don't just have cancer. You don't just have uh, infectious disease. You don't just have other areas. There is a common denominator. And as you strengthen one, you strengthen them all. So the short answer is absolutely it will have a positive um, connection to furthering our cancer therapies in a more expeditious fashion. What are some of the exciting fields in cancer research these days? Uh, a lot of, of um, excitement over immunotherapies. And as you and your audience know, we are using immune therapies to be able to release the, our immune system, which is very effective at fighting off cancer cells. It's interesting. Cancer cells have learned a way to be able to blunt the immune system. But now we found a way to be able to release the immune system so that we can effectively use our immune system to fight off cancer cells. And so you will hear from the results at ASCO um, many important studies in advanced stage disease and early stage disease for lung cancer, melanoma, uh, cancers of the head and neck, um, esophageal cancers, renal cancers, so many different types of cancers where we see that adding a treatment that can release the immune system significantly reduces the risk of progression of disease or disease recurrence. So that's very, very exciting. Um, We'll hear about a study in patients who, breast cancer patients who have have been diagnosed with breast cancer because they have a breast cancer gene, BRCA1 or BRCA2. And this is a study that is a randomized study, a federally funded study, that shows that there's a certain adjuvant therapy, a certain type of treatment called PARC inhibitor, and I won't bore you with the details of that. But basically, with only three years of follow-up, we're seeing a significant reduction in recurrence of disease and distant disease in these patients who have um, a, a, a breast cancer due to a mutation. So that's very powerful, and and it emphasizes the importance of testing women who may be at risk for having this mutation, because if they do, this may be a therapy that will help them to reduce the risk of having their disease to come back. Um, There's another study, there's so many studies, there's another study that is very important in patients who have metastatic prostate cancer, and very, very difficult cancer to treat. And this is a study that's using a radio ligand, um, which is using radiation bound to, a tr- bound to a molecule that attaches to the prostate cancer, and it delivers the radiation. And the study shows a significant, not only significant reduction in progression of disease, but also a significant improvement in survival in a group of patients that's been very difficult to treat. Um, and then there are many studies that are also looking at equity of care. We have to be sure that all of these amazing studies that we have, that we apply them equitably. All patients deserve high-quality high care. Um, and so we will have a range of, of therapy outcomes and a range of, of abstracts reminding us of the importance of equitable cancer care. Talking with Dr. Lori Pierce again. She is the uh, president of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Cancer, for instance, melanoma, can start out as, you know, a mole on your skin that changes, but it's when that cancer has moved on to your lungs or your brain or your liver that it kills you. And, And it seems like no matter what kind of cancer, many of them, it comes down to 
how to treat it when it does spread. Is that sort of the magic bullet on figuring out how to deal with the spreading of cancer uh, that, that will end up getting rid of all of it? Um, what, the point you make is a very important point. We know that in patients who have um, disseminated disease, it's very, very difficult to effectively treat them and to um, minimize further progression. The as opposed to those who have early stage disease where they are potentially curable. And then you take it to the next step, which is what you're taking is, can you prevent the cancers? And so that is the full continuum of, of, of cancer development from prevention to early uh, disease to advanced stage disease and to and survivorship as well. And so many of the studies look at each of those uh, points along the continuum and make recommendations for the best possible therapy at that particular point in the stage of With you being a radiation oncologist, has that field and chemotherapy, are those ever expanding and and are we still learning new ideas and ways to use those methods to treat cancer? Oh my gosh, we're absolutely uh, learning new ways to to use these therapies. So we're coming up with new chemotherapies every day, Um, we're finding new indications, new ways to be able to use chemotherapy, we're finding ways to combine the therapies. And you mentioned radiation, you mentioned uh, chemotherapy. There are many studies that are looking at chemotherapies that can sensitize the tumors to radiation so that you get even more uh, efficacy out of the radiation than you could with just radiation alone. And we're finding different ways to give the radiation, not only external beam, but we can plan it with intensely modulated radiotherapy. We can use brachytherapy. We can use the radio ligand that I mentioned in that vision study. So there are many ways to be able to liver therapies and there are many ways to be able to combine therapies so that you get even greater efficacy and that you can do so safely. So it's very important to to have efficacious treatment and it's very important to deliver the treatment safely. And both of those endpoints are, are studied very, very carefully in all of our trials. Just a moment or so to go with Dr. Lori Pierce with the American Society of Clinical Oncology. What is the the one kind of cancer or situation with cancer that is most frustrating to you? The one type of, the one situation of cancer that's most frustrating to me is uh, a situation where a patient has a cancer and they don't have the ability to receive the care they need. That is extremely frustrating to me because, again, every patient deserves equal treatment. And we know there are patients out there who don't have the means because they don't have Medicaid coverage, because we don't have Medicaid expansion, um, and they are either um, unaware they have coverage or more likely they don't have coverage, and so they can't then receive the treatment that they need. So that is the most frustrating thing to me because this is under this is within our power to correct. And I think we need to send a very strong message that everything needs to be done, not only from the provider level, but more important from the government level, um, from a community level, that um, every patient deserves equal treatment and every step needs to be taken to be sure that they secure the treatment that they need. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Pierce, if folks want more information online, where do they find it? Um, they should go to cancer.net. That is our website at ASCO where physicians and patients alike can get the latest uh, information on all types of treatment and all types of cancer. Dr. Lori Pierce, president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology and radiation oncologist and professor at Michigan. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. We sure appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.